0: How many of you have ever heard the expression continuing what Jesus started? Raise your hand. Good, you're very astute. That's actually our vision, our motto, which grew out of a series that we did a number of years ago. And that sums up pretty well why we exist as a church. We exist to continue what Jesus started. Well, that begs the question what did Jesus start that we're supposed to continue? As you read through the Gospels, he did a whole bunch of stuff that we don't have the ability to do. So what did he start that we're supposed to continue? That's what we're gonna talk about in this series. We're gonna look at some of the things that Jesus started, and then we'll grow into the series later on how we continue those things. Well, this morning, we're gonna go back to John. We finished the seven IMs. Now we're gonna look at some passages that, Highlight what Jesus started and what we are to do as we continue that. So we're going to turn to John 2. And while you're turning there, let me just tell you something I thought of this week. I was reading through John, and all of a sudden I realized, you know, John must have liked treasure hunts. Have you ever gone to a treasure hunt? Raise your hand. Or did one for your kids? Now, here's how treasure hunts work, right? You come up with clues, and you give your kids... Go to where the car sleeps. You go out in the garage. Oh, there's a clue. Go to where things are always cold. Run to the refrigerator. Another clue. Go out to the sandbox and get out of the house. Run there. Well, you collect the clues, and eventually the last clue leads you to the treasure. That's kind of what John does in his gospel. you got to remember, he wrote decades after the other gospels were written. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already done. He then is thinking about what Jesus did. Remember, he was a real close friend of Jesus. And he puts together this gospel and he does it around a series of clues. And in fact, at the end of the gospel, he gives us the treasure. So a little bit of a spoiler here. Here's what he says at the end. Jesus did many other things. He performed lots of other signs, but I recorded these signs so that you can see that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and by believing, you will have life in his name. That's in John 20. So that's the treasure. And in the preceding chapters, he's sprinkling clues throughout his book. And what we're going to do, we're going to pick up some of those clues and see how they lead to the destination. Well, we're going to start by looking at John chapter 2, 1-11, to 11, and this is Jesus' first miracle, or to use John's language, Jesus' first miracle sign. Now remember, a sign is not the destination. A sign points to the destination. So John's using sign. Here's something going on, but what happens here points to something greater. And this is all about a wedding. But before I read the 11 verses, let me tell you a little bit about what weddings were like. You need to understand something about the wedding business in the first century, because Jesus is attending a wedding in Cana. Now, Mary's there, a few of his disciples are there, and Jesus is there. So that probably means either this was a really prominent family or a relative of Jesus. And Mary comes in the incident, we'll read in a couple minutes, she comes with a special request to Jesus. Jesus, will you help them out? Maybe Mary was real close to the family, maybe she was a relative, and maybe she was responsible for getting the provisions ready, we're not sure, so maybe she senses some responsibility. Now, uh, just a few differences between weddings then and weddings now. Weddings today, 20-minute ceremony, often at the place of the reception, three or four-hour reception, then you go home. It's kind of late afternoon, evening, checked off the calendar. Not then. Weddings lasted a week. Can you imagine? I have a hard time doing a three-hour deal. A week. A week. Now, you had to stop it before the Sabbath, so they often started early, and then the wedding would go day after day after day. The financial responsibility for the wedding fell to the groom and his family. As a father of two daughters, I wish we would have reinvented that or gone back to that deal, but uh, yeah. So the responsibility was the groom, and you're going to notice a title that appears in the middle of the chapter. This is the only place in the New Testament we read this title somebody shows up in the incident and he's called the master of the banquet. He was like the guy that kept the party going. He's an official person, right? You hire this guy. He's a hired life of the party. He had some responsibility for the logistics of the wedding. And then he was there kind of like the MC keeping the party going. So we have people like that today at weddings, right? Things are falling flat. Everybody onto the dance floor. It's hokey pokey time. We're going to do the Macarena. Things are coming. The bride and groom are going to cut the cake. Hurry over to the cake. We're going to throw the bouquet. Things are really done. Tip your glasses, right? Ring your, and the bride and groom will kiss. The life of the party. Now, I don't know what traditions they had back then, but we do know masters of the banquet not only did logistics, they kept the party going. Well, this master of the banquet and this groom and his family are in a world of trouble. Follow along as I read John 2, 1-11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now that's kind of strange, isn't it? If this is Jesus' inaugural sign, his calling card miracle, right? This is his business card event, right? His first miracle in John. You know, we have business cards today. You introduce someone. Maybe maybe you go to LinkedIn today. You don't have a business card. But uh, you share a business card. And on the business card, you have your name, what business you're in, who you represent, all that kind of stuff. This is Jesus' calling card miracle. The first sign, his business card. He creates 150 gallons of wine. That doesn't fit with our normal picture of Jesus, right? This is the first one, right out of the chute. This is going to explain why he's here and what he's come to do, what? Well, it's all in here. We could just scratch beneath the surface. You're gonna see Jesus planned this perfectly. And it explains exactly why he's here, what he started, and what we need to continue. The first thing you're going to notice on his business card is that Jesus is in the grace business. He's in the grace business. God loves to provide for people what they cannot provide for themselves. That, by the way, is the definition of grace. Jesus provides for people what they cannot provide for themselves. As you read through the Old Testament and New Testament, God regularly shows up and provides for people what they cannot provide for themselves. That's grace. Jesus is in the grace business. There's a problem at this wedding. They've run out of wine. And in an honor-shame culture, it isn't just running out of supplies. The family's reputation is on the line. At least running out of wine is going to make the family, the master of the banquet, the groom, and the family a laughing stock. At the other end of the continuum, they're going to be shunned and have to move out of town because hospitality was at the top of the list. You had to give your best for your guest, and this is a ceremony like through the roof. At a wedding, you need to provide the best for your guests. And this wedding's about to fall flat. They're running out of supplies. They're running out of wine. The master of the banquet will never work again. The groom's gonna be disrespected. His family's gonna be disowned. Nobody's gonna wanna hang out with them anymore. That family's name will go down in history as messing up a wedding and disrespecting all their guests. That's the situation. In the middle of that, we have this really weird conversation. Did you notice that? Jesus' mother comes to him and says, um, Hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine. Now, why would Mary tell Jesus they ran out of wine? Like, does he know the shortest route to the liquor store? or like what the ha- Why go to Jesus? Well, Mary doesn't know where this incident's going, but I suspect she's often thought about what the angel said. Remember at the first Christmas? I suspect she often thought about what the shepherd said at the first Christmas. And she raised this kid, and she knows, yeah, he's something special. I'm not sure what he'll do. Maybe she's responsible for supplies. We don't know. But she goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they ran out of wine. She doesn't know what he'll do. But after all, they need something that no one else can provide. She goes to Jesus. Maybe he can provide it. But the most troubling part, look at what Jesus says. Woman why do you concern me? Why why do you get me involved? My hour has not yet come. Now, woman isn't disrespectful. It's not like crude, but it's not mommy either. It's a very formal tone, right? Now, you can't say it's negative because at the end of John's gospel, Jesus uses the same word, woman, when he's hanging on the cross and he looks down and says, woman, your son, John, John, take care of my mom. So it's not a disrespectful term, but it's, it's formal. And then Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Well, here's another weird thing. Every time the word hour is used in John's gospel, every time, you, you read it this week and you tell me, every time hour is used, it always refers to the hour of Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. That's Jesus' hour. It's almost like Mary comes and interrupts him, but he, he's thinking of something else. He's, his mind's not there. And Jesus, they don't have any warmth. Hey, I'm not ready to die yet. Wh- what? Like, what's going on? And then Mary says, just do whatever he tells you to do. Now, we often think of that conversation based on our day. And we think it goes something like this. Jesus' mother comes and says, Jesus, will you set the table for them? And Jesus says, it's not my time. It's not my time. And then Mary says, he'll set it. And then Jesus, all right, I'll set the table. But that's not what's going on. I think here's what's going on. Jesus says, uh, Mary, my priorities and my agenda are not determined by the things of this world. Remember, Luke records an incident where Jesus is 13 and he goes back to the temple, and he says a very similar thing when they come back to find him in the temple, and Mary's kind of upset. She I can't believe you stayed here. Your father and I are worried sick. And what does Jesus say? I had to be about my father's business. Not Joseph Father, Godfather. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not being nasty to his mom. He's saying, You don't understand. My priorities don't come from the affairs of this world. My agenda is not established by what's going on here. I follow my father's agenda. His priorities are mine. And when he does the miracle, he puts a few elements on his calling card. I'm in the grace business. I'm not just wiping the egg off of the face of the bastard at banquet or this groom and his family. I'm establishing a principle about what business I'm in. I'm in the grace business. And I've come to do for people what they cannot do for themselves. That's why I'm here. Boy, what better way to have that as an element at this miracle? Jesus provides what people can't provide for themselves. He delivers what they can't deliver. And that's the first element that goes on a card. Now again, it's fine print on the card. It's giant print in Jesus' mission of salvation and forgiveness. But the small print on the business card leads to the reality of what that person does and who the person represents. Just like your business card is fine print, but the reality of what you do and what company you work for in your job is giant print, the small print of the miracle, of the sign, I'm in the grace business, the giant print. I've come to provide what human beings can't provide for themselves. I've come to provide forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. They can't provide that for themselves. Well, the second line on his business card, if you will. Jesus says, uh, I'm in the joy business. Now I know lots of if you look at a lot of Christians, you swear that, you know, following Jesus and living the Christian life must be misery because these people always seem crotchety, like they're sucking on lemons all the time. They're complaining about everything, critiquing everything. Notice you never get that from Jesus, he's in the joy business. He keeps the wedding going. This wedding's about ready to run out of steam. Jesus keeps it going for a couple of extra days and he does it by making like the best wine ever. 150 gallons of the best wine ever. Did a little math this morning. That's over 750 bottles of wine at this wedding. That's a lot of wine. And the quality of the wine through the roof, right? Even the professional wine taster says, well, you guys got everything backwards here. Usually you bring out the best wine. Everybody's taste buds are still kind of, you know, tasting. And, but then you bring out the cheap wine later when everybody's had a little too much. But you've reversed it. You saved the best wine to last. The quality of wine, Jesus, it's amazing. Uh, but that's not the point. The point is not the quality of the wine. The quality of what Jesus does is explained in where Jesus made it. Where did he make the wine? In six stone water jars used for ceremonial cleansing. Now these were not six water coolers that you know some of you have in your office or maybe you have it home, you press the button you get an ice cold they're not water coolers. These are for ceremonial cleansing, right? The Jews and you know the Old Testament speaks to this to remind themselves that they need to kind of clean up to go into God's presence, that God's holy and we're not. Well, wash your hands, kind of wash yourself, get baptized. And then on the outside, you're clean as a reminder that, hey, I need to be cleaned up on the inside. And God provides a way for me to be cleaned on the inside. And so these six stone water jars, were for ceremony, it wasn't that your hands were dirty. It was a ceremony, right? A ritual, you jump through the hoops. What's Jesus saying by making wine? In the six jars used for ceremonial cleansing. Out with the old, in with the new. All the old prescriptions of external cleansing are swallowed up with the internal cleansing that I've come to bring. Joy is on the inside. That's what Jesus brings. Wine does its work on the inside. Water for washing your hands does its work on the outside. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, what we often say, Self-help won't help. Self-help is ceremonial washing. Self-help is you wash your hands, try to clean up your life, turn over a new leaf. That doesn't work. Jesus says, I bring change on the inside and that change will manifest itself on the outside. Wine does its work on the inside and changes on the outside, brings joy on the outside. That's what Jesus is doing. Out with the old, in with the new. Jesus is saying, I'm in the joy business. And I don't bring, just bring joy by changing some circumstances out here. I bring true joy on the inside. I'm going to change the inside. And that manifests itself and changes on the outside. Now, we should probably stop here before we get to the other business. The people at this wedding, particularly the groom, master of a banquet, his family, probably the bride, they're feeling guilt and shame, aren't they? They're about ready to run out of supplies, and they know the consequences are going to be pretty severe. We don't know why they ran out of wine. You know, a logistic problem, supply chain chain issue. You know, we have those today. Maybe that was the problem. Maybe it was really hot out. The guests were especially thirsty. They drank too much. Maybe some unexpected guests came. We don't know why they ran out of wine, but we do know what the consequences would have been. Guilt and shame. They're feeling guilt and shame. Now, if you think about it, How would they normally have handled their guilt and shame? Clean up the outside, right? Make some changes on the outside. Do some self-help to get rid of the guilt and shame. Make some changes in your life, usually on the outside. You know, go to another seminar, get another notebook, buy a book at the store, and kind of make, what's Jesus say? No, no, no. I bring change on the inside. I've come to deal with guilt and shame but I'm not dealing it with some external you know, self-help thing. This is an internal transaction. That's what I've come to do. Jesus is in the joy business. Now, I know when you read the Gospels, you often don't think of it but You read through them again. Jesus is often, I mean, he's the life of the party. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but there's times of celebration. And I picture Jesus laughing and telling stories and going to parties. Remember the accusation? You spend all your time eating with people and drinking with them. You're a a drunkard and a glutton. Life of the party. He comes to bring wine. Well, there's one other element on Jesus' business card. And uh, I'm not sure I like this one too much. Jesus is in the wedding business. He's in the wedding business. You can't deny it. Do you realize that weddings are all over the Bible? Uh, I know we have some people in the room they are going to be getting married soon. And here's something you may not have known. The Bible begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding and all kinds of weddings in between. Weddings must be pretty important to God. And it's not that God looked down and said, boy, they're getting married all the time. I can use that wedding stuff as an illustration of what I'm... No, no, no. You ever think God invented marriage and weddings to illustrate what he wants to have with us? Weddings are all over the place. In the Old Testament, God married to Israel. In the New Testament, the church, the bride, Jesus, the bridegroom, weddings all over the place illustrating this ultimate relationship. Well, in order to understand what's going on here, we can't begin in John 2, because that's not where Jesus began. I don't know this for sure, but I just wonder when Mary says, hey, they've run out of wine, and Jesus seems to be called off guard. I just wonder if maybe he wasn't looking back and looking ahead. Let me say it like this. I know many of you have attended weddings. You went to your own wedding, hopefully, right? Lots of weddings. But I do know this. When single people go to weddings, I know what they're thinking. I know they're happy for the couple getting married. If they're friends at a bride, oh, they're excited. And if they know the groom, they're kind of excited. They'll pray for him. And you know, well, but I do know this. When single people go to weddings, they're thinking about their wedding. Isn't that right? Maybe it's too much to say. Maybe at this wedding, Jesus is thinking about his wedding. Let me explain it this way. Let's look back to what Jesus may have been thinking. I think he was thinking about it because you can read through the rest of John and see it from Isaiah 25. I'm going to read these verses. I can read the fine print back there. Here we go. Now, you keep John 2 in mind. And in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet is laying out what identity markers are going to be for the Messiah. So Isaiah says, hey, the Messiah is coming. And when he comes... Here's how you'll identify him. Now you tell me if Jesus wasn't thinking about this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. a banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that's death. The shroud of death that enfolds all people. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Notice, you'll be able to tell who the Messiah is because when he comes, he's going to prepare a big feast. There's going to be lots of fat food and fine wine at this feast. You think it's just coincidental Jesus shows up to a wedding where they ran out of wine. And out of the six stone jars used for ceremonial cleansing, Jesus makes the finest wine the world has ever known. 150 gallons of it. I kind of think Jesus is thinking of Isaiah 25. I know some of you read Isaiah 25. Yeah, but look, it says that when the Messiah comes... He's going to lift a shroud of death off of people. Yeah, but John's not done telling the story yet. In fact, if you jump ahead a couple chapters to John 4, notice, right, so in Isaiah 25, this big feast is coming, calling card event. What's one of the next signs to come in John chapter 4? What do we read there? Jesus goes back to Cana. That's where the wedding was. He goes back to Cana. And when he's there, an official approaches him and says, Jesus my son is dying. And Jesus says, uh, return home. Your son will be well. And as the official's returning home, he meets the servants that are coming to tell him that his son was healed and he's not going to die. This was a terminal illness. The servants meet the official going back and he says, well, when exactly did he get well? Huh. The exact time of the conversation the official had with Jesus. Yeah, but it said the shroud of death will be lifted off of all people. Yeah, the official was not Jewish. The official was a Gentile. Yeah, Isaiah 25, the feast of fine wine, the shroud of death removed. And there you see the fine print in John chapter four, the shroud of death removed from one Gentile that's going to culminate in the giant print later And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but it also says he's going to wipe every tear from their eye. Yeah, well, John's not finished telling the story yet. You see, John also wrote the book that comes at the end of the New Testament. That's Revelation. And in Revelation, this is what he writes. I'm going to look this way. Now, you keep John 2 and you keep Isaiah 25 in mind. And you tell me what Jesus was thinking at the wedding. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom at the wedding. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among people. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things, stone water jars, has been wiped away with the newness of the Gospel. Pretty cool calling card miracle, don't you think? I read a poet a long time ago, and this quote's kind of, I don't even know who it is anymore, but it's burned into my brain. He was thinking about John 2. And here's what he said, based on Jesus thinking of his hour, his death, right? Crucifixion, resurrection. Here's what he wrote. Jesus sat in the midst of joy, wedding at Canaan. Drinking the cup of coming sorrow, because the bridegroom would soon pay for his wedding, so that we can sit in the midst of sorrow, drinking the cup of coming joy. There it is. Jesus sat in the midst of joy, drinking the cup of coming sorrow. That's what he's thinking so that we can sit in the midst of sorrow and heartache and sin and guilt and shame, drinking the cup of coming joy that the bridegroom came to purchase and will return to deliver. Not a bad first sign, huh? You think Jesus had in mind exactly what He was doing? Maybe turning the water to wine at Cana isn't so strange at all. Maybe it's exactly what needed to happen. Oh yeah, there's one more outline point. What's my business? We looked at wedding business in general, what weddings are like in the first century. We looked at Jesus is in the grace business and he comes to provide for people but they can't provide for himself. And Jesus is in the joy business coming to deliver us from shame and guilt by what happens on the inside as he enters, not what happens on the outside. And Jesus is in the wedding business looking back and delivering what we can't deliver, a relationship with God. Jesus comes to reunite us with God in an intimate, loving relationship. Only one question left. You're invited. What are you going to do with the invitation? Will you accept the invitation of grace? The invitation of joy? Invitation to a wedding where you're not attending. You're a participant and the bridegroom. Waits for your answer. And for the ceremony to begin balls in your court let's pray father sometimes we read them um, accounts and incidents that happen in the Bible and they seem really strange to us and this is one of them we think how in the world and why would Jesus ever as his inaugural calling card miracle change water to wine but in looking back and looking ahead just like he was probably doing in Cana, you kind of see the big picture. Jesus is in the grace business. He's in the joy business. He's in the wedding business. And he came to invite us to an eternal celebration. We pray in his name. Amen.